Pulse Audio Podcast Network. about history or we whine about women from history that you definitely should have fucking heard of i'm emily i'm kelly and <laughs> if you're not watching this you're probably really confused but if you're one of our lovely patrons who are seeing the v2ra this will make perfect sense maybe hopefully we are doing a very special patreon video episode so if you're a regular listener Obviously, you're hearing this, but if you're a patron, you get to see all of the weird hand motions. You get to see our studio and our fun dress-up theme, which was Harry Potter, as voted on by our patrons. So, you're welcome. Yeah, you are. Yeah. So, Kelly, uh, you decided to dress up as your, like, your OG house? My OG house. I have... Oh, my God, it fell. No. Oh, no! (laughs) I have an actual, like, from Harry Potter land scarf for Slytherin because that's what I used to be so I was I started telling Emily this and then I decided I'd wait so I was a Slytherin and now I'm definitely a Ravenclaw but I feel like it also depends on like my mental health I was thinking about this I'm like I'm either uh like Raverin which doesn't make any sense or like Slitherclaw which I like better I actually just heard about people like being like half and half in the house name combinations I was like what And then I was thinking, like, it kind of makes sense because in people's horoscopes, it's like if you're born close enough to the next sign or the previous sign, you're a a little, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God, everything. It just doesn't make sense. But I was like, I'm going to make a shirt that says Slitherclaw, depending on my mental health. (laughs) (laughs) Very specific. I love it. So Um, if anyone else wants one for their combination, let me know. Yes. So I, uh, I didn't choose a house. I assume I'm a Hufflepuff just because every time I read about Hufflepuffs, I'm like, oh yeah, that's me. I just, I want a snack and want everyone to get along. But if you fuck with my friends, I will bury you. But instead I decided to dress up as Moaning Myrtle, which is why I was very whiny at the beginning of this. And uh, if you can see, I've got my toilet paper on my computer and myself. And actually this was a costume that I wore to a friend's like Harry Potter themed Halloween, or not Halloween, holiday party years and years ago. So when Kelly was like, oh, we're doing Harry Potter. I was like, yes, I don't even have to buy anything. And before you get offended, before you get upset, I will be using all this toilet paper. I'm not wasting it. I know that toilet paper and hoarding it and using it properly is a very hot topic. I will be using all of this toilet paper. It's 100% recyclable for my V&A. So we're good. It's totally fine. Oh, that was great. We're very... We're very earth conscious, earth conscious on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. We don't waste anything Especially not wine. I'm just going to do a little stripping because it's hot in her. Yeah, it's uh, it's toasty. I was actually cleaning in my costume before I got here and I was getting all sweaty. I'm like, I'm going to sweat like a fucking pig, but that's okay. Because then I'll have just like this layer of condensation, like a wet bathroom, which is totally my jam. Because I'm moaning Myrtle. I'm the weird pervy toilet ghost. Yeah. Yeah. Then I, I got a little tie. I had to learn to tie a tie for you guys. <laughs> I didn't do like a fancy like Windsor knot or anything. I just did standard. You know what? You start what what kids start Hogwarts at like eleven years old? Twelve? Yeah, I bet none of them know how to tie a tie either because they just use magic. So they just all have shut clip, up. they all just have clip ons. Yeah, you were just you were just born in a muggle household and didn't think to use magic for your tie. That's true. Yeah. 
It's totally fine. I was just like, no, I'll do this the normal way. I would also love to hear what your Hogwarts houses are and like why and all that stuff. So that's cool. All right. So to get started, I picked the wine today. Which and our I bonus drinks. Which does that mean I should have done the intro? It doesn't matter. It's done. This anyway, is how we've been doing it. We're moving on. I'm dead. It's done. We're just going to move on, hang out in toilets. So today I picked Cat 2 because it's like our witch pets. <laughs> it's a kitty cat. Uh, so this is a 2019 Zinfandel from Paso Robles, which I always think is in Spain, but it's in California. Yay. And it says... Paso Robles is a really unique California wine region, which is literally the only way I knew this is in California. Otherwise, I'd probably still be talking like it's in Spain. Hot afternoon heat, cool nights, diverse soils, and a long growing season that make it optimal for red wines with intense flavor and character. Speaking of character... (laughs) Your funding allowed me to source Zinfandel from small select vineyards with Paso and make a chocolatey rich and fruity red that's silky too. I love these bright flavors. There's even a little spice like pipe tobacco, all spice and black pepper. This sounds like the perfect wine for fall. It does. Which I understand it's August, but we're already starting to get that. I I have leaves in my yard already. The leaves are falling. The weather is getting a little cooler. We're getting a ton of rain, which... Hopefully it doesn't last all fucking fall. We didn't fall. get like any this summer. Like we were in drought. Like, I mean, we're not California or Canada. We're not on fire, but like we've been in drought conditions for like the last month or two. Yeah. And like the last three days, it's been nothing but thunderstorms. Yeah. And it's one of those things I normally complain about the ram. Like we really need it. But I just really hope that like my fall weekends are not plagued with rain because I want to go to some fucking apple orchards and pumpkin patches. Yes. Also, I want to finish the last part of this because it's actually funny. Thanks to the support of Angels because this is from my Naked Wines box. The cats are on the prowl at nakedwines.com. Meow. <laughs> yeah, that happened. Cute. Meow like a kitty. Meow. All right. Cheers to the magic that is us. Baboom. Magical clink. I do have one other thing. It's mm. not like a shout out or anything. It's oh, just God, something. this does taste like pipe tobacco. God, I want a cigarette now. And don't smoke, though. Smoking's bad. I just thought this was cool. So I was watching GamesCon. Like, I don't know when it actually was, but I was watching, like, a thing on, like, and it's where they reveal. It's not, like, a specific maker, so it's not, like, Blizzard or Microsoft or anything. It's, like, all of the big games coming out in a year. So they were talking about the new Call of Duty Vanguard, which is about World War II, and, like, all the different skirmishes, like, the that were taking place, and they have a female sniper that's going to be a main character called Polina Petrova, based on Ludmila Pavlachenko. Shut the fuck up right now! Yeah, I know, I was so excited! Yes! I was so excited. yes! Because, like, they were talking about her, because, like, they were interviewing her, her, here's the photo. Kill the Nazis with your sniper gun, because Nazis suck ass. But they were having, like, a conversation with, like, the voice actor that that's playing her. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about, like, how she's fearless and how she was a nurse. And I'm like, this all sounds real, like... <laughs> Why does this sound familiar? So Where have I heard I, this before? Yeah, I Googled it. And, yeah, it says that it, it's 
based on Ludmila, and I'm like, yeah, that is fantastic. So I think I told you I watched Enemy at the Gate with Jared, mm-hmm. and it was one of those movies that he wanted me to watch, but I'm rarely in the mood for a war movie that's going to make me cry. So instead of being like, do you want to watch this for the 10th time? He's like, I'm just going to put it on the TV, and if you want to leave, you can leave. So I watched the whole thing. Uh, and there was a character in it whose name was Ludmila. And for anyone who doesn't know, it's about s- Soviet snipers um, defending, oh my God, Stalingrad? Yeah. That might be it. Yep. Anyway, um, Jude Law's in it. He's he's a cutie. And then, um, oh my God, Rachel Weiss from mm. the Mummy movie. So like, literally those that's all you need to watch it it's really good it's really sad though so you know make sure you're in a place where you can handle that but there was a sniper character named Ludmila it's not spelt the same as Ludmila Pavlichenko but still but I'm like okay two Soviet snipers named Ludmila I think we know where it's happening but I don't know she I think it was more of a like like almost like a nerdy Easter egg versus a right. tribute to her because she was nothing like Ludmila Pavlichenko is described. Well, it's like in the, there's a game called the world of tanks, which is apparently like mm. a, this huge game. Jared's they, played that. They, <laughs> they released uh, the fighting girlfriend. Oh, shut the with, fuck like, they, up. You could get it within the world of tanks. And I'm like, that's cool. I might have to play it now just to get the just fighting girlfriend. <laughs> oh my so God. Cool. I love that. I'm going to have to tell Jared about that because he was, he played that for quite a while. All right. Well. I was searching war of tanks instead of world of tanks. War of tanks. Tanks of the war. Yeah, see. That's awesome. I hope, I hope a woman Maria pops out of it. Octaya Braska. Octaya Braskaya whatever. Yeah. It's funny. I covered her and I still can't say her name. I, it, it's because I had to say her name once and I didn't want to screw up. So I was like over and over and over. And now I've like, I got it in there. It's I in just, my, yeah. I just, I vault. think it's so cool. Like there it is in like in, I, in game. I really hope that like when you kill someone, she pops out and she's just like, that's for my husband, you bitch. Right. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. Or like maybe the tank's superpower is that if you get injured, a little woman pops out and fixes it. Because she did that all the time. The tank Mul- would get hit and she's times. like, bitch, I'm going to get out and fix this while you're firing at me because fuck you, Nazis. Well, and that's her tank actually survived beyond her because of yeah. that. Like she was fixing it when she died. Yeah. Oh, so sad. Yes. I would have I would have loved to read her autobiography. That would have been amazing. It's called The Real Morton Salt Girl because she was salty yeah. as fuck. That's great. <laughs> salty and spiteful. All right. Uh, are you going first? I'm going first. Okay, awesome. That means I just get to sit back and enjoy my wine and make pouty faces. So I'm covering Eliza Lucas. Yay. Um, she was born in 1722 in Antigua, which is where I took my honeymoon, which is why I know it's actually pronounced Antigua and not Antigua. I was just about to ask, but I was like, wait, Kelly actually went there for her honeymoon, so she probably knows better. Don't femsplain your friend. Yeah. No, I always <laughs> used to say Antigua, and then we went there, and they're like, welcome to Antigua, and we're like, It's oh. like um, <laughs> Barcelona and Barcelona. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so she was the eldest daughter of George Lucas, not that George Lucas, 
obviously. I wish you could see my super old. I wish you could see my face because I just about spit out my wine. I was like, what? 1722. Are we going to be talking about Star Wars? (laughs) He'd be real old. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. But here's the thing. That's why he's so like futuristic mindset-y because he has seen the future. He doesn't. Um, He just reinvents himself every like 90 years yeah, exactly. he's, a, into a, he's new, a vampire clearly. into a new man who's still named george lucas <laughs> that'd be so funny so her father george lucas was lieutenant governor of antigua at the time um she was raised on a, the caribbean island on a plantation and at a young age she was skilled in botany which became a life passion of hers she cherished her education saying quote Education which esteems a more valuable fortune than any could have given will make me happy through my future life. By the way, I just looked up a picture of her. Not that one, but this one. She's real pretty. Gorgeous. The other one, she looks like a raging bitch, but like really comfortable in that role. Right. What did, what did you say? Um, salty and sassy? Salty and sassy. Um. So she, so she obviously was a Ravenclaw, loved, loved learning. Um, in 1938, uh, Lieutenant Colonel George Lucas um, moved his family back to the Americas, um, to the province of South Carolina. So it wasn't even a state yet. Um, and he hoped that moving them home would make um, a better climate for his unhealthy wife. Um, and... That's where they had like been from. So they had they already owned three pl- plantations in the Low Country, which is like the south western chunk of South Carolina, like along the coast and then along the border. So they owned. Wait, wouldn't that be southeast? Because southwest yeah. would be away from southeast. The you're right. Coast. It's hold funny, on. like I pictured it in my Let head. Me hold yeah, up no, my southeast. <laughs> Too bad. There. I mean, I guess if you can attribute east with right and west yep. with left, but otherwise, it's like there's no like good i know <laughs> there's no good hand trick for that yeah no because the one that makes an e is actually yeah if you can like trick West. yourself into being it's the opposite yeah i don't know um so they went home and then after um they went home unfortunately her mother died shortly after like oh, she wasn't in good health like unfortunately she, you know she just didn't make it. Um, and after that, her father was called back to Antigua when war broke out with Spain. Dun, dun, dun. Um, and every time he tried to come back, uh, England's involvement in the war of the Austrian succession thwarted his attempts to move back to his, to his family. Like every time he tried, they were like, no, we need you for something. No, it's, we need you for something. It's so funny because when we cover these really historical women, like there's always like, oh, and then they moved here and then they traveled here. And it's always said as like, no, oh, and then he went back to Antigua because shit was going on. And it's like travel back then was the biggest to do in the world. Like you could die on your way. Like, and it took months or weeks. It just, it was so insane. And wherever we cut, yeah. There was no guarantee you were there. coming back. Yeah, exactly. Like, like in this case, like they were just like, nope, you don't get to go home. Or or we people people were separated for years at a time because it's like, well, I'm going to sail to England to like get our house set up and then you can come, you can follow me later. Like totally just such a mind fuck. I know. I want to be able to move that easily. I don't even want to drive eight hours in the fucking car, let alone sail on a ship for five days. And this isn't right? like a cruise ship. No. This is a ship ship, y'all. I mean, this is probably a military ship. Yeah. yeah. So through Eliza's letters, you could tell that she very much respected and had deep affection for her father. 
and that she was dem- she was acting as head of the family in terms of managing the plantations because he was gone and her mother was dead. Um, and remember, she's the oldest daughter, so that also means she's taking care of her siblings, and it'll come back to that. She's kind of doing everything that was traditionally the man's role along with the woman's role. Yeah. So she was 16 years old when she became responsible for managing um, the Wapu Plantation. Yep, Wapu. Was it a fertilizer plantation? No, it was rice. It's like, um, it's like we're Wapod, they're Wapu. Wapu. <laughs> um, so the Wapu Plantation, it had 20 slaves. Uh, it's that time. I know, it just sucks. Um, she also was also in charge of overseeing the t- other two plantations, obviously. Um, but she was living on the Wapu Plantation. And so she had, like, overseers at the other two. But she oversaw, like... The overseers, because she was in charge. Can I just say, I couldn't manage shit when I was 16 years old. They definitely should not have let me drive. Like, right. Like, the idea now that 16-year-olds can have a license, I'm like, but they're idiot babies. And now she's running an entire estate, multiple plantations. Right. Like, just at 16 years old. Yep. No, thank you. Um. So one of the plantations, which was a lot farther inland, produced tar and timber, and then they had a 3,000-acre rice plantation on the Waccamaw River in addition to the Wapu rice plantation as well. She was also keenly aware that rice was basically the only major cash crop in this region, um, but she was really determined to increase the wealth of other crops in in the low country. That's what I'm going to refer to it as because it's easier than being like, the southern eastern part of... South Carolina. It's so funny that you say that because I'm like, oh, yeah, southeastern Minnesota, because that's where we live. It's not like southeastern South Carolina. Oh, it's a okay, little longer. It's like south, south, yeah, south, southeast. Um, so in addition, like I said, to caring for the plantations, she, she supervised her extremely young sister. The other two members of her family, she had two brothers, um, but they were still at boarding school in London. So she didn't really have to take care of them. Yeah, there there was a whole staff of people with very hard rulers to take care of them. Um, well, it was cool because it was very customary for whoever was running a plantation to like write down, you know, what they were doing so they had records. So she kept incredibly detailed records of her decisions, her experiments, all of her letters. And she would basically just, like, copy. Like, that's how they learned to write back then, is they would kind of look at a book and then just kind of, you know, copy letters, essentially. Um, and these books, these letter books, is one of the greatest and most impressive collections of personal writings from an 18th century American woman. And I'll talk more about that later. It's at the very end, because it's. I just think it's really cool. What kind of experiments is she doing? Is she oh, having, we'll talk like, about it. Is she, hasn't, is she having, like, potions class? Kind of. Is she getting witch it's doctory? herbology. Oh my God! Um, who who who's the who's the plant professor who um, had the screaming Sprout. meanies? Professor Bro- Professor Sprout. Sprout. I call them screaming meanies. Okay, because they could paralyze you. Yeah, because they were assholes. It was bad. They were um, just a bunch of colicky dirt babies. <laughs> basically, actually, yeah. So when she was nineteen, um, she wrote that she had started planting a large fig orchard at Wapu, quote, with design to dry and export them into fig newtons. So. You know, she's she's getting shit done. She started experimenting with various schemes to make plantations more profitable. She wrote to one of her friends, Mary Bartlett, quote, I am making a large plantation of oaks, which I took upon as my own property, whether my father gives me the land or not. 
She believed that oaks would become more valuable than they are now um, because that's what they use to build ships. So they're like, she's like, as this war progresses and as, you know, people need ships, it's going to become really valuable. She's like looking ahead, Rosie the Riveter style, where she's like, hey, they need planes in the future and they need ships now. Exactly. Um, So even though she was considered like higher society, so during that time, the higher society, especially the women in the summer months of South Carolina, because it's hot as hell. It's, you know what? And the worst part is it's humid. Yep. And it's, it's very swampy. Wet heat. There's a shit ton of mosquitoes. Yeah. Um, it's it's just, just not the best environment for, you know, Victorian ladies. I don't know. Well, and especially because everyone's dying all the damn time. Yeah. So getting tuberculosis was, and whatnot. Exactly. So during these, the months of like the summer, it was customary for planters, especially those with high statuses, both men and women to go to Charleston, South Carolina and socialize and like basically remove themselves from the bad conditions on the plantation and like live in the city for a few months. Um, Eliza, however, preferred to stay at Wapu and just live on her plantation, which I think is really cool. Um, She would. Okay. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but it's probably like. I imagine our college town, River Falls, and it's like when school's not in session, it's like, oh my God, I have the whole fucking town to myself. I just get to enjoy this without a bunch of people around in cars. And I just get to, I just get to enjoy it. She's She's like, no one's going to fucking bother me. Yeah. She's like, okay, this is, this is my me time. Everyone get the fuck out of my town. Go to the city, do your thing. I'm going to chill here with my mosquito net, you know, shawl. Right. We're fine. She did have two friends that lived, um like on a plantation nearby named Charles um, and Eliza Lamb. Not even joking. She had a friend with the same name. Eliza was a really popular name at the time. It was. Um, So it was Charles and Eliza Pickney, and she would um, occasionally vision their house. They they were very close friends, you know, but obviously when you're both living on like vast plantations, you probably don't visit very often. But, you know, like they they were quite friendly, and they actually acted as her um, guardian as well as her friends while her father remained in Antigua. Um, and they were they were very very close. Um, but Charles in particular was very skeptical of Eliza, not his wife's interest in planting. Like he's he, he said, "quote Tell the little visionary come to town and partake of some of the amusements suitable to her time of life." To which she responded, "Quote." Pray tell him what he may now think whims and projects may turn out well by and by. Out of many, surely one will hit. He's like, I, I can't do it, but that's me dropping the salt. That like, and I, I love he's, I love he's like, yeah, he's like, he's like, come to town, come to town, and do what you're, what a woman of your status and age would do. And she's like, bitch, I'm working. Fuck you. And she was right. Eliza was right. So South, as I mentioned, South Carolina's economy was largely based on rice, which unfortunately, because it was largely based on rice, it means a lot of the plantations were planting rice, which unfortunately was hurting the the planters because they overproduced it. Their markets abroad dried up as England began fighting with Spain and France. Like, and suddenly they had all this rice and nothing to do with it, which oh, sucks. no one wanted rice. Exactly. They should have been growing quinoa. <laughs> How know. do you grow kale. quinoa? I don't know. Kale. Um, I don't know. What, what's the hot superfood? Acai berries? Yeah, whatever it is. Um, so Eliza's father, who is still around, um, you know, he knew his daughter's love of botany. 
and he had a few years prior sent her indigo seeds from the West Indies. Um, so she was experimenting and it took her three years, but she actually event- eventually perfected a method for growing indigo in the South Carolina soil. Because I mean, obviously it's not native to there. Yeah. So she did tons of experiments, which of course all of her neighbors ridiculed um, because they were like, it's a tropical plant. It's not going to do well in the winter. Like, I, I was going to say South Carolina can get cold. But not only had her father sent her seeds, he had sent her a Frenchman as well, not as like a husband or anything, <laughs> um, whose name was Montserrat. But basically he was he was there to help her figure out how to grow indigo, basically. He's Order like, now and get your free Frenchman. Frenchman exactly. <laughs> like, um, oh, my God. So she, over the three years, she perfected a way of ma- not only growing indigo, but making blocks of indigo cakes that could then be turned into dye. She was she was obviously making a bunch, and she actually went on to send a sample to um, Great Britain because she was like, you know, you're you have blue uniforms, you're gonna need this dye basically, and she <laughs> was super successful. This was a new and lucrative business, and she shared it with other South Carolina like planters. She wasn't like a complete asshole about it. I'm sure she was just like, no, you said this didn't work and withheld it for a little while. Then was like, yeah, yeah fine. Um, well, cause then she has to show off, you know? Right. So when the historian Lewis Booker Wright wrote um, a bicentennial history of South Carolina, he wrote quote, so rapid was the development of the industry, but that by 1748 South Carolina shipped England 134,118 pounds of indigo cakes. And it remained a profitable crop until the revolution. Obviously. Because, you know. Oh, this is pre-American Revolution? Yeah. I, I was not paying attention the to the years. 18th century, so 17-something. I, um, I don't think I've eaten enough today because I'm already like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, I'm a ghost. I shouldn't be able to get tipsy, but here we are. Another historian, Edward McCready, wrote, quote, Indigo proved mo- more beneficial to Carolina than the mines of Mexico or Peru were to Spain. This source of great wealth was a result of an experiment by a mere girl. Shut the fuck. Why you gotta put it that way? Why is it in all of our stories, even when someone is complimenting the woman, they always turn it into an insult? Like, here's the thing. I I respect the Minnesota passive aggressive energy there, but knock it off. Right. Like, yeah, it's impressive that she did that. It doesn't matter if she's a girl or not. It just makes it more impressive that she was a girl because no one was helping her, except for maybe that Frenchman. (laughs) Yeah, but he just came as a freebie because, you know, she ordered within 20 minutes of the infomercial showing up on TV. Free Frenchman. Buy one now and get one as a gift for a friend. (laughs) Um, God, I don't watch infomercials now. The same year that she started doing really well, there was... Two bits of devastating news that kind of happened one right after the other. First, her father wanted the family to return to Antigua. He kind of knew the war was going to be ongoing, and he was like, I would like my family to be with me. Second, her dear friend Eliza Lamb Pickney died. Oh, sad. So she's like trying to figure out what the fuck she's going to do, because obviously she doesn't want to go back to Antigua. Like she has this empire, basically, that she's built. This indigo empire. And so she's like, crap, what do I do? Like, and then her friend dies and she's like, fuck, what do I do? So I don't know who thought of this idea, but I, I, it's kind of ingenious. So having been widowed, Charles Pickney, the neighbor, 
proposed to young Eliza. No, he didn't. He did. No. Okay, I'm... At least he's not going to say the wrong name in bed, I guess. I mean, so... I assume it was like a discussion. Like, he was like, okay, you want to stay. I need someone to help me run my household. Yeah, but Mutually still, beneficial? Like... Oh, this is my wife, Eliza. Yes, we've met before. No, you haven't. I this mean, is Eliza too. I assume they look different. Oh my God. This is my wife, Eliza. I, I Did you dye your hair? I thought she was a blonde. No, this is my second Eliza. I mean- I have two. I, this is my backup right, Eliza. Though, like, there was a lot of Elizas. That's insane. So he proposed to her. He was 45 and she was 22. Ew. Um, however, I, I'm being judgy and you're you just going to have to accept it. <laughs> however, she accepted because she didn't want to go back to Antigua. Yeah. So she got married and she was like, no, dad, I'll continue running the plantations here. Um, so he wasn't like just some bum and some farmer. Um, Charles wa- had studied law in England and was a politically active leader in the South Carolina colony. He was South Carolina's first native born attorney and served as advocate general of the Court of Vice Admiralty and the Justice of the Peace. So, like, I mean, he did shit. Like, he was, you know. <laughs> he did shit on Weemapoo Plantation. Yeah, exactly. He was, um, so, yeah, he went on to do some stuff, but this isn't about him. So, interesting fact that I wasn't going to include, but I thought it was kind of funny, so I included it I, anyways. Funnier than the fact that he remarried a woman no. with the exact name of his dead wife. I mean, they had different middle names. I do not. How often does someone use, what is your middle name? I don't even know that. Marie. I have like. That's why I was going to guess. super common middle name. Okay. what Do you know what my middle name is? Anne? No. That's a, Emily Anne though. That's a cool name. Jean. Jean. Oh, that's right. I yeah. Did, after, I didn't know that. I just After forgot. my badass grandma who taught me the F word and called me a bitch. No, I said you were acting like a bitch, Emily. It's different. It is. I was acting like a bitch though. Um, so prior to their marriage, Charles and Eliza one had not had any children. Um, however, Eliza Lucas, the one she, he's married to now. Eliza two, the um, one we're talking about. Together, they mothered, or she mothered, four children with, with Charles. So they first said Charles Coatsworth, which some of these names should be re- uh, recognizable. Coatsworth. Yep. That's um, going to be my new, I'm Alice Coatsworth of the Buckingham Coatsworths. <laughs> of the South Carolina Coatsworths. <laughs> of the South Carolina Coatsworths. Maybe you've heard of us. Um, no. So he was born in 1746. They then had George Lucas. <laughs> God damn it. It's after her dad. No. Okay, but he's George Lucas the second. So, what is Star Wars George Lucas? Would he be like the third um, or the fourth? He'd be like the fifth, right? So he was born in seventeen forty-seven, but passed away soon after. After having his son George Lucas the third. <laughs> no, like when he was a child. No, like. no, I don't care. <laughs> uh, they then had their only daughter Harriet, um, and then they had another son Thomas in seventeen fifty. And Eliza very much viewed motherhood as a new exciting experiment that she happily was like ready to take on. And I love that. Oh my God. I love, she's just like excited to do new things. Like she's very much like, let's go out there and try things. She's got a bit of Gryffindor in her, right? Like the bravery and the balls it takes to do what she's doing. She's a, she's a, she's a Ravendor. Gryffindor. Gryffindor. Oh, that's hot. That's better than Ravendor. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my god! Um, so after after her marriage, um, she continued to do experiments. This time with hemp and flax, as well as silk. Um, unfortunately, he died 
let's see, they would get married in the 40s. He died maybe like 10 years after they got married. Um, and when he died, she took over management of his several plantations as well. And the town properties he owned um, because he unfortunately had uh, contracted malaria and died. So, like, we were talking about that stuff. Yeah, exactly. No, there was um, there was someone I was learning about. I think it was Mother Jones, and one of her like almost everyone in her family died of malaria because of mosquitoes because it would get hot and humid the mosquitoes would come for you and the fact that anyone was able to settle in minnesota and survive blows my mind because we are are the joke is our state animal is the mosquito because they are everywhere this summer at least for me wasn't that bad no because it was so dry but like minneapolis st paul is literally on a swamp yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the fact that city is a city and not everyone died of malaria blows my mind um so like I said, she continued to, as when he died, he, she continued to manage uh, her extensive plantations at this point. In addition to Lucas Holdings, which was kind of like the trust that was set up like from her father. So kind of um, jumping ahead, because I'm going to talk about her sons briefly to let just kind of let you know the type of people she raised. Um, so... Her two sons became national figures. Charles Coatsworth Pickney became a general in the Revolutionary War and was one of the signers of the United States Constitution. Oh, shit! Yep. And Thomas Pickney was also a Revolutionary War officer and later a general and then became the United States Minister to Spain and Britain. So BFDs, big fucking deals. Yep. Um, Charles, the one that became a signer of the Constitution, also continued his mother's love for experimental farming and he was one of the early adopters of Sea Island Cotton, which was a grade of cotton excellent for, like, high-quality goods. And she, he also shared his mom's scientific knowledge with fellow planters, just as she had shared hers. Sea Island Cotton sounds like a Glade plug-in scent. I would buy. Immediately, I'm like, we're on our house, on the Cape, getting day drunk with our, like, little show shoat boat steering wheel earrings and our navy white striped shirts with our sweaters tied around us getting day drunk while our sugar dyes pay for everything and the house smells like sea island cotton right i have painted beautiful picture and i'm willing it to the universe um so the reason i kind of jumped to her sons is because you know other than managing the plantations the rest of eliza's life was pretty i mean par for the course for her like she just spent the rest of her life basically growing her empire and running plantations. Like, so there isn't much else to write. Um, What is cool is she did live long enough to see her sons achieve prominence and America win its revolution. Um, She died after a battle with cancer in 1793 in Philadelphia, where she had been taken um, for treatment and is buried there. Probably one of the neatest things is, at his own request, George Washington was one of the pallbearers in her funeral. Yeah. Like, he was like, let me get in on that. Like, how cool is that? Oh, my God. Right? That is insane. Yeah. So I the- mean, it makes sense if her sons were such big deals during the American Revolution. They were, but like, still. officers and stuff. That's really cool, though. Right. So the Charleston City Gazette uh um, wrote her obituary and wrote, quote, her manners had been so refined by a long and intimate acquaintance with the polite world. Her countenance was so dignified by serious contemplation and devout reflection and so replete with all that mildness and complacency 
which are the natural results of a regular, uninterrupted habit and practice of virtue and benevolence, that is scarcely possible to behold her without emotions of the highest veneration and respect. Her understanding, aided by the common strength of memory, had been so highly cultivated by travel and extensive reading, and was so richly furnished as well with scientific as practical knowledge, that her talent for conversation was unrivaled. Her religion was rational, liberal, and pure. The source of it was seated in the judgment and the heart, and from thence issued a life regular, placid, and uniform. I don't think her life was placid and Did uniform. that do get paid by the word? Because that was... That was very flowery. That was a very long, like, sentence. Right. Um, like, she, be beautiful, don't get me wrong. And they're like, yeah, she's the best. But I'm just like, oh my like God, one, I'm falling asleep. One on <laughs> sentence. Yeah. Um, Eliza Pickney was inducted into the South Carolina Business Hall of Fame in 1989, and she was the first woman to be honored. Damn! So I mentioned that I would come back to her writing, so this is where I'm coming back to her writing. Okay. So from the time that she began her life on Wapu Plant... I can't say that. No, it's a terrible, terrible Wapu. name. Uh, so from basically from her time where she came home back to South Carolina until she died in 1793, she carefully copied all of her conversations and letters into books. So remember I, I mentioned that. So her books are organized into multiple volumes, each depicting with great detail a different period of her life so that's pretty insane that is so the first few volumes range from 1739 to, four, to 1746 so this is her description of like her family's move when her mom died her, her beginning of the experiments with the indigo seeds um basically what she wanted to do with them and like it went um, into great detail on these years of experience as well as the eventual marriage to her longtime friend and neighbor, Charles. So that's kind of where that ends. And then the second set of volumes um, is 1753 to 1757. So this is when they'd begun their new life together, had their children. Um, this reflects the time that they had briefly moved to London for her husband's job where they lived for about five years and then they came home. The whole time she's still managing plantations. Jesus. The third set of volumes are the, the last set, and it corresponds with the family's return home, the death of her husband, um, basically how she did with being widowed, the overseeing of her family's plantations, um, and then, you know, her life as a widow for more than 30 years. She also spent the later part of her life searching for a cure for breast cancer because that is what eventually killed her. Um she, oh, honey. Right. Um, she did keep, she did continue to keep copies even after her husband died. But the, like, even though there, there are some in there, there are a lot less. She didn't keep all of them. And like I said, that these letter books are the most complete collection of writing in the 18th century America and provide a valuable glimpse into the life of an elite colonial woman during this time. Okay. You know, what is so amazing about that? There are so many women that we've covered where the information we have is like hearsay, potentially legendary, like we and huge chunks of their lives that we just don't know about. Right. And this woman literally wrote all that shit down. Right. Yeah. So no. we know everything, yeah. pretty much everything that she was willing to share. Scholars consider this book extremely precious because it describes everyday life over an extended period of time rather than a singular event in history. So Eliza had passed it on to her daughter, Harriet, who in turn passed it on to her daughter. And this letter book was passed down from mother to daughter well into the 20th century, at which point the family donated it to the South Carolina Historical Society. 
That is the sweetest thing I have ever heard. Can I like get a copy? Like, did they ever publish it? No, no, no. Like, how hard would it be to just transcribe? I mean, okay. Now it might be hard because, you know, you have to wear the white gloves and like be careful about touching it because it might, you know, just disintegrate. But what like a fascinating totally account. can get it. Okay, thank God. I'm like, we failed. We fucked up somewhere along the line if I can't go and read that myself. And the, yeah, there's, there's. That is so wild. Three. That is so wild. Yeah, I know. It's in, it's cool. I, I might have to pick up a copy of that as well. Very cool. Eliza and her indigo empire. Yes. Also, like, okay, it's it's a little weird that, you know, her husband was previously married to someone with the same name. So now his wife, like her name literally never changes. But like, you know what? If you if you fall in love with some Eliza's like and everything else is fine, like I'm just being judgy. But I kind of imagine their relationship because he was like, oh, she should come to the city and do what normal girls do. And she was like, I don't think so. I imagine like very Anne of Green Gables where she's like this little rebel doing it for herself. And he's at first he's like, that's weird. Women don't do that. But it's hot that you are <laughs> like, right. I mean, like, I imagine he had this respect for her. Oh, yeah. And, like, even if it wasn't like love, love, because obviously there was a lot of, um, benefit and because she wanted to stay and he's like well I need someone to like cook and clean for me and deal with my shit I don't know how I much like, cooking and cleaning she well, did. okay <laughs> fair but you're managing the household but I like to imagine managing he's like fucking plantation girl you got your shit together let's do this like I respect you I respect right. your situation what you got going on right I mean obviously there was something because she didn't like stay behind when he went to London like she did go with him. yeah which I mean I would too oh, yeah. <laughs> that'd be fun but yeah, so it's cool. And obviously she raised some good kids because they went on to be pretty like amazing people. Revolutionary too. war heroes. Yeah. Very neat. And what an interesting piece of history that I don't think either of us had ever, no. would have ever thought of had we not been doing this podcast. Yeah. No, I just, I uncovered her. I was like reading something else and I was like, who the fuck is this person? Oh my God. I love it. Business savvy AF. Hell yeah. Talk about a boss babe. Hashtag lady boss. <laughs> so today I'm going to be whining about Colonel Kim Campbell. Ooh. And this is kind of a listener suggestion. I'm going to say that in like air bunnies because I don't know if this person actually listens to the podcast, but he knows I do have one. So uh, this listener's suggestion is from Jeb and he is the husband of my boss's daughter. <laughs> And we did some work on his website and I ran into him and his uh, wife at Target. And I was like, oh, yeah, I do a women's history podcast because that's literally the only interesting thing about me. So yep. he sent me an email totally out of the blue. And he's like, hey, do you still do that women's thing? Because you should totally I don't know if he call it women's thing. But it was a very brief email. Yeah. He's like, you should cover this woman because she's a total Spartan. And I'm like. Okay, so after a cursory wiki search, I was like, um, hell yeah, I'm doing this woman. So that is Kim Campbell. Also, Jeb is a veteran himself, and he does, like, knife making. And you can check out his stuff at jebtaylorknives.com. That's J-E-B-T-A-Y-L-O-R-K-N-I-V-E-S.com. He's got some cool stuff. Like, it's, like... I'm a huge fan of Fortune Fire, which is my only, like the only reason I know even 
an eensy bit about knife making, but it's a really crazy process. He's excellent at it. He does some amazing work. So seriously, if you're looking for a knife for that special person in your life, check him out. It does. That should be his new slogan. I am a marketing genius. The knife for the special person in your life. Get a knife for the special person in your life. I wouldn't mind. I am as long knife, as you're not putting it in their back or knife. something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not your enemy special person, the person you love that you won't stab. Yeah, yeah. Send, send like a glitter gram to the people you hate, but get a knife for the people you love. Anyway, today I'm whining about Colonel Kim Campbell. Yay. So Kim Nicole Reed Campbell was born on June 6th, 1975 in Honolulu, Hawaii, which I'm like, okay, like I would just literally never leave that place. Where have you traveled? I don't know. I've been to all the Hawaiian islands. I've literally never left because why the fuck would I? Her father, Chuck Reed, was a former United States Air Force captain and former mayor of San Jose, California. So like- Kind of fucking cool. Yeah. And at only 13 years old, so when I was at like my most angsty, she joined the Civil Air Patrol as a cadet. So the Civil Air Patrol is a federally supported nonprofit that serves as a civilian like auxiliary for the United States Air Force or USAF, as I'll probably refer to it. So it's made up of cadets ranging from 12 to 20 years old and senior members who are 18 years or older. And actually I was at a like, uh, gold rush days it's like basically this giant town-wide rummage sale and i saw a uh a civil air patrol cadet like he had his whole little like outfit and everything it said civil air patrol i'm like oh my god i know what that is <laughs> do you ever like learn a new word and then you see it or hear it all the time and you're like i know things <laughs> yes actually now, being a Civil Air Patrol cadet is no joke. This isn't the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts where you could just kind of like fudge your way through it like I did. This isn't summer camp. Cadets undergo military training. They hold rank and they are continually tested on their physical abilities, leadership, and aerospace knowledge. Like this isn't something you just like join and then it's like, oh, you get a button. Like you can say you did it. Like you have to actually fucking do it, which I can't imagine a 12 year old being like, yeah, this is my thing. And as you advance through the cadet program, you're awarded ribbons, which are named after notable aviators, including Amelia Earhart. Duh. Uh, And this award is only awarded to like 5% of cadets. Wow. So like shit's hard. Amelia's hard to get. It's also very hard to find. Yeah. Oh, too soon. <laughs> so members of the Civil Air Patrol can assist the Air Force in non-combat missions and help in the case of emergency situations. So they're like, this might not be an appropriate like comparison, but I imagine like the Merchant Marines, like civilian people who know what the fuck they're doing and yeah. can be called on in the event of emergencies. So... Through the Civil Air Patrol, Kim learned how to pilot aircraft and at only 16 years old, again, when I definitely should not have been allowed to drive a car. See, that was probably my most angsty. <laughs> was 16. Oh my God, we're learning so much. So this is when most of us are getting our driver's licenses and super shouldn't have. She made her so- first solo flight in a civilian aircraft, wow. which I'm like, I shouldn't have been able to drive a car and she's flying a goddamn plane, which I'm like, I don't think anyone should be allowed to fly a plane. It's, it's crazy to me. It is. It's totally magic. 
So Kim kept flying high and graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree from the United States Air Force Academy in 1997. That's awesome. And there she achieved the highest rank possible for a cadet, Cadet Wing Commander. Boom, mic drop. And this is now officially a family tradition because her father achieved the same rank when he was at the USAFA. That's awesome. And this was the first time that a father and daughter both served as cadet wing oh, commander. Oh, that's awesome. Which I'm like, oh my God. And it kind of makes sense because this is the 90s and women in the military, as far as like becoming pilots and, you know, like that's. Yeah. Not to be punny, but taking off. <laughs> that was incredibly funny. Oh, yes. And I will not apologize. I like that not to be punny. And then you're like, yeah, it was incredible. Not funny. to be punny, but let me execute this amazing pun. So because Kim was smart as hell, because honestly, to be an Air Force pilot you and like graduate from the Air Force Academy, you have to you be incredibly intelligent. And perfect vision. Yes. You have to have 20-20 vision. Yes, which is why... I can't be in the Air Force yep, also same. because well, I'm dead. Well, I mean, we could be <laughs> in the Air Force. We just couldn't yeah. be pilots. So she also earned a degree in international security studies, which I'm like, what? That's a th that's insane. Like, I want to audit one of those classes just to be like, what the fuck do you guys talk about? Like, right? do you talk about like... Simply safe and ring and like if those are actually good options for home security. I don't know. But she got her master's degree uh, or no. Yeah, she so she got her degree in that from the University of Reading and she got her master's degree in business administration, which she earned from the Imperial College of London. I think she got a scholarship to, to do that. And she's like, um, school in London. Fuck yes, please. Right. Which like. I think I would go and get my accounting degree if it meant I got to go to school in London. I think I would actually make that leap. Just because, like, school in London, let's do this. So in the 2000, Kim completed her undergraduate pilot training and earned her pilot wings. After this, she began service as an A-10 project officer and instructor pilot, so... Let's talk a little bit about what an A-10 is. And I'm going to ask Kelly to put a picture here of an A-10 with its scary face and everything. So an A-10 Thunderbolt, also known, known as a Warthog. Should I put her this one? You can totally do that. Um, that's a good picture. Yeah. So an A-10 Thunderbolt, also known as a Warthog, is a big plane with some big-ass guns. In fact, it's called the Flying Gun because <laughs> they're very on the nose. It's also called the Tank Buster and it's used to destroy enemy tanks. Duh. In the A-10 was originally developed during the Cold War to respond to Soviet tanks should there be like a land invasion. Because remember, we're all like, America, Russia, we're all like this close to fucking each other up. And then we like by this much didn't. We were just waiting for them to invade uh, Alaska. Yeah, or doing a million other things. And they actually almost nuked us. Cuban missing cr miss missile crisis. Did you ever hear that about how they almost nuked us? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure we almost nuked them as well, though. Okay, really quick story. We have all these alarms, so if some if we get, like, an alert that a nuke is coming, we can send our nukes, and it's this whole mutually assured destruction thing. So it's like, I won't send my nukes because I know you'll nuke me right back. Right. So in some Soviet office, they got false alerts that the United States was oh, going to yeah, nuke them. Story. 
and and they were gonna push the button they had orders like you yeah, don't and, question it you just fucking the, nuke them and the guy was like something doesn't feel right i'm not gonna hit the button yeah and he's so like he didn't and luckily it, it was, was a, a false, false alarm, alarm. <laughs> And he got in trouble, though, because his whole job is to just, without question, push the big red button. And he's like, I didn't know you guys. And he saved the world. This one dude saved the world. I was like, he was interviewed once, and he was like, I, yes, I got in trouble. And I, I don't know if he got fired or something, but he's like, I don't regret it. He's like, I do not regret it. I can you imagine if he was like, yeah, I regret that I'm still alive today and I didn't push that button and the world. I mean, that's what the original 99 Red Balloons is about, that they picked up balloons on radar and they were like, the fuck do we do? Oh, my God. That's such a peppy song. It shouldn't be that peppy. Sorry, it was originally called 99 Luft Balloons. Well, that's the German. That's German mm-hmm. for red balloons. But what I'm saying is that song is way too peppy to be about world annihilation. Oh, yeah. Mutually assured destruction is fantastic. Oh, oh my God. Sad. Okay. So we originally made these during the Cold War, but obviously because nothing happened, they weren't used until decades later. And they were used extensively during Operation Desert Storm, uh, which in the 90s, Operation During Freedom in Afghanistan, and Operation Iraqi Freedom. For added effect, they also have an angry monster face painted on the nose of the plane. Because just because you're going to war doesn't mean you can't get crafty. Right. It's great. <laughs> like, it reminds me of uh, those old World War II planes where they have the pinup girls painted on them and the scary faces. Yep. And, like, they would, they would, like, paint on bombs, like, special delivery for Hitler or something like that. I feel like when you're in a situation like this, you have to have kind of a sense of dark humor because otherwise it will break you entirely. So Dr. William Curtis III, who was in charge of working on the aerodynamics for the A-10 design, said, quote, they are typically flown in during combat to offer support to ground troops. And Kim was adept at flying these deadly aircraft and earned the nickname Killer Chick. And that works on two levels because it's what she is. And it's also her initials, Kim Campbell. And I'm like, oh my God, it's almost like she was destined to be killer chick. (laughs) Love it. The only time it's appropriate to call a woman to chick. Right. So these planes are meant to take a serious beating and can withstand artillery that would destroy anything else. An A-10 is designed to be able to fly with only one engine, half its tail, one elevator, and half of a wing missing. So, like, wow, because they're there to destroy tanks, and obviously the tanks aren't going to, like, sit by and be like, oh, no. So the cockpit is protected by 1,200 pounds of titanium armor, also called a bathtub, Mm. which I thought was cute. At over 16 meters long with a wingspan of over 17 meters, sporting a 30 millimeter GAU-8A cannon, up to 16,000 pounds of mixed ordnance, mind-dispensing munitions, and an AGM-65 Maverick and AIM-9 Sidewinder. This is not an aircraft that you want to be on the wrong end of. If you don't know any of that means, just know it's impressive and deadly as hell. Because <laughs> I didn't know any of that meant either. I even... I had never asked Jared so many questions than while doing this research because he was in Iraq. He was uh, serving Operation Iraqi Freedom during the same time. And I was like, oh, does this sound right? And he wasn't in the Air Force. Like, he doesn't fucking know. know. But I was, like, reading him that sentence. I was like, does that sound right? Like, does that sound like something someone would say? He goes, sure. I'm like, okay, well, I officially have your endorsement, so if I'm wrong, it's your fault. (laughs) 
Also, I was, I was slightly wrong about the red balloons. It was about someone releasing balloons, but it wasn't necessarily about... It was more about them trying to make it look like an, a UFO and scaring people that way than well, that's releasing very missiles. Play- that's way more playful than ending the world. God damn it. I'm I mean, glad you, could, you corrected that. You could that. still end the world. <laughs> Maybe. You know, War of the Worlds, no big deal. So, unfortunately, on April 7th of 2003, while flying a mission over Baghdad during the Iraq War, that's exactly where her ki- where Kim found herself. What, with like half a wing? Yeah, in a bad stitch. So, less than a month into Operation Iraqi Freedom, Kim was flying a mission to target some enemy tanks when her squad received a call from ground troops who were being fired on and needed immediate help. Quote, This is a quote from Kim. We could see the Iraqi troops firing RPGs or rocket-propelled grenades into our guys. It was definitely a high-threat situation, but within minutes, my flight lead was employing his 30-millimeter Gatling gun on the enemy location. Yes, there was risk involved, but these guys on the ground needed our help. It's what any A-10 attack pilot would do in response to a troops-in-contact situation. That's our job, to bring fire down on the enemy when our army and marine brothers and sisters request our assistance. So they're like the backup, like, hey, we're... We're all going to get fucked yeah, they're here. Like, they're like, if you're and in the, the air. And the A-10s come in and they're like, we got you. When you hear about <laughs> airstrikes, those are the planes you're probably yeah. thinking about. So her squad was successful and Kim was getting ready to fly back to the base when her aircraft was hit. She said, quote, we did our job with the guys there on the ground. And as we were on our way out is when I felt the jet get hit. It was pretty obvious. It was loud. I'm like, I feel like you can't mistake your jet getting hit by anti-aircraft tank weaponry. I lost all hydraulics instantaneously, and the jet rolled, let, and pointed toward the ground, which was an uncomfortable feeling over Baghdad. An uncomfortable feeling. <laughs> no your, panic. Just I was a little uncomfortable, guys. Your aircraft has been shot over a war zone. You're going down, and you're like, yeah, that That's was just not how much a of a badass feeling. she is. She's like, I was just a little uncomfortable, guys. And she, she goes on to say, it didn't respond to any of my control inputs. Ugh. So she's like... I would be panicking. Pulling and pushing wherever you do in a plane and nothing's happening. I would be panicking. So let's do a quick recap. Kim is in a war zone. Her aircraft has been hit. None of her controls are responding and she's heading for the ground. Ooh. That's not a situation anyone wants to be in. What she would later learn is that the A-10 has sustained extensive damage to one engine and the redundant hydraulic systems. So this disabled the flight controls, landing gear, brakes, and horizontal stabilizer. So, like, what does that all mean? She's going down, and there's not a ton that she can well, do about it. Well, she has a crew, right? Like, she's the pilot, but there's other people on board, like the person firing the gun and I stuff, I don't know right? if there is. Shit, I should have looked that well, I did so much research on these fucking well, because planes. she said that there was a guy firing a Gatling gun. I assume no, no, that's no, on that her was plane. no, that was because she's in a squad of people oh. with a all piloting A10. Oh. So that was her flight leader. Okay. So they're all following the flight leader, and the flight leader is like, no, I'm gonna look it up. We're fucking doing this, and he's like going rat a tata tata. Yeah. You know, it's like everyone's favorite purple rat Pokemon. It's fine. So after unsuccessfully 
performing several procedures to get the aircraft under control, Kim made a last-ditch effort and put the plane into manual reversion. And she said, quote, It was my last chance to try and recover the aircraft or I would be riding a parachute down into central Baghdad. And now remember, she has just fired at a bunch of tanks to save American ground troops. She doesn't want to be ejecting over a war zone where she's probably going to be captured and become a POW and only God knows what's going to happen. That's that's also not a situation anyone wants to be in. It is a solo. Okay. Good to know. If this is the right plane, it is it is yep. a solo. So I'm going to say right now, like I can't even drive a manual transmission car and I can't imagine Let having to fly one of those plane. big bat. They're so big. Well, too. They're, they have a, like they're so long, like they have an enormous wingspan. Yeah. And that's not just me. Like, it's not just, well, Emily, you don't know how to fly a plane. You think flying is scary. It's not just like a civilian thing. These aircraft are ridiculously difficult to pilot manually. And that's why they have all these redundancies. So what the redundancies do is like, if one thing goes out, there's a, there's a, you know, B, C, D, like down the line, you're still going to be okay. You have all these backups and all the redundancies are shot to hell. And I actually watched a YouTube video by uh, Grim Reapers. I guess check them out if you're into this. And this guy does flight simulators and he received an email in which the reader said that they heard that the A-10 can take a crazy amount of damage and stay airborne, kind of like I talked about. Yeah. So they decided to test this out with the simulator and the person piloting the A-10 tried to do manual reversion and whatever else they could do to keep the plane in the air and they couldn't. They crashed every single time, which granted... This is some dude just playing a simulator. I don't know how good he is, but still. So Kim is a badass, though. And with some technical technical advice from her flight leader, because thank God they can communicate over the radio, she began to successfully fly the plane in manual mode. She later said, quote, the jet started climbing away from the ground, which was a good feeling because there was no way I wanted to eject over Baghdad. She's so <laughs> chill. I mean, I'm sure, that, I mean, it's after the fact, but right, still. Right, like- but she, she's like, well, that was an uncomfortable feeling going down. It was a good feeling when the plane stopped nosediving. It was a good, good thing. So the flight back to base took over an hour. And I can't imagine how exhausting it would be to keep that thing in manual and like above the ground and all of that for an hour. But now she still had to land. And remember, she's got like no landing. Yeah, yeah they said no landing. No brake. No brake. Oh, Jesus Christ. And the way Kim put it, she said, quote, when you lose all the hydraulics, you don't have speed brakes, you don't have brakes, and you don't have steering. Which I'm like, what? Do you have? You must must have some sort of steering if you can fly the plane, but I'm sure she means like ground steering. Yeah, I I mean. Oh my God. I don't know anything about planes, but yeah. Thankfully, she was able to successfully land the aircraft because what I'm imagining is like just going down and like that and like just the fuselage is bouncing up. On the ground. I mean, good thing the pilot's protected by like. The bathtub. Yeah, the 1,200 pound bathtub. So she said, the jet was performing exceptionally well. I had no doubt in my mind I was going to land that airplane. I'm like, I'm glad you had no doubt right. because I'm like, I didn't know. You can guarantee everyone end. on the ground is like, oh, this isn't going to end well. Yeah, everyone <laughs> held their breath. It was insane. 
So when the plane was inspected, they found that it was riddled with hundreds of bullet holes. And naturally, she took photos of her with the damaged plane because, like, of course, you have to. If I was in a plane that got shot up and I survived, I'd be like, that would be my Facebook profile picture forever. That would be my picture for every professional appearance. I would attach it with my resume, even if I was going into a non-airplane specific thing. And I'm going to ask Kelly to put up a picture of that because... It's redonkulous. And she looks so proud. She's like, I survived that. (laughs) General Richard Myers, uh, United States Air Force Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I don't really know what that means, but it's fancy. He said, quote, she's one of the few pilots who ever landed the A-10 in the manual mode. Wow. This is not like something you're supposed to be able to do. No, it's like there's like two or three people in the entire world that have done it. But Kim didn't take all the credit because she's very humble. She said, quote, I'm incredibly thankful to those who designed and built the A-10, as well as the maintainers who did their part to make sure that jet could fly under any circumstances, even after extensive battle damage. So she's like, I mean, if this plane had been fucked up in some way, I may not be here. Like, this may be a very different story, and I really am thankful that they took care of the plane. The next day, Kim was back in the air on a search and rescue mission to find an A-10, which had gone down over Baghdad. Oh, my God. So that could have been her. Exactly. That, like, that blew my mind. I was like, okay, so now you're getting to live the alternative timeline where you did go down over Baghdad. Right. This like, is you looking for you, essentially. Yeah. And that, that was, like, that was a total mind fuck for me. And yeah. uh, thankfully, we have her thoughts on that oh, situation. Good. Quote, I never really had time to think about the fact that I was going back to Baghdad, where just the day before I had escaped a possible shoot down. In my mind, the only thing that I could think about was that I had a job to do. I knew that the search and rescue alert crews were there for me the day before, and I was going to do the same for this pilot. And I'm not crying. You're crying. That's really sweet. Well, and it it makes sense, especially when you're in a war zone. You you kind of get acclimated to how intense everything is, and you have a job to do, and it's about getting that job done to the best of your ability. Right, it's like hardcore prioritization. Yeah, like almost getting shot down is like you don't get to take the next day off for that. Kim was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for her, quote, heroism or extraordinary achievement while participating in an aerial flight. Wow. And a year and a half later, Kim deployed again, this time to Afghanistan as a part of Operation Enduring Freedom. And during her entire 24-year career as an Air Force pilot, she clocked 375 combat hours and flew over 100 combat missions. Wow. She flew 1,800 thousand hours in the a10 warthog wow i can't imagine doing anything for 375 hours we haven't even done this podcast for 375 hours i do think it's interesting though that of the eighteen thousand hours she flew in an a10 warthog only 375 of them were considered combat yeah but i suppose because they fly the planes there and back like you know yeah that's true like So, living legacy because Kim is still kicking it. Yeah, yeah. So, you can actually find her on LinkedIn. (laughs) That was a great resource for me. It was like reading her whole resume. So, she travels giving speeches about her military experience, um, including working as a keynote speaker for Athena's Voice, which is a speaking agency for women veterans, which I'm like... That's super cool. Oh, my God. That's incredible. 
She also worked for the United States Air Force Academy in a bunch of different Ops. roles. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think it said that her most recent role was, like, director of something. I didn't write down her whole resume. Right. But uh, she, like, just stopped creepy. in June 2021. And wow. I was like, oh, my God. What? That's this year. And I want to end this with a quote from her that I feel like really just summarizes her attitude and especially in regards to this event. Um, so she's speaking into in reference of what she does or did as an A-10 pilot. Quote, that's our job. That's what we do. We're here to help the guys on the ground. And when they need our help, we're there to help them out. And that was actually from a, a video interview shortly after this incident because this gained a lot of attention, especially in the United States, because it was in the early days of the you know Operation Iraqi Freedom. Yep. It was a really intense event. Obviously, from an aerospace point of view, it was a really like incredible feat that she achieved. Right. And yeah, that was that was a news interview that I found on YouTube. That's super cool. And that is the story of Colonel Kim Campbell, aka Killer Chick. I love that. That was great. That was amazing. I need to do a really positive one because my one for next week is going to be a bummer. I also need to do this for the video because, again, the one next week is going to be a bummer. Yeah, don't do that for a video. <laughs> no, because I'm like, and this no had one so wants many. No just sit us, yeah. watch us sit here and ugly cry. Just cry, yeah. But this had a lot of cool visuals, too, because, like, the A-10 is a really interesting aircraft. You can see her A-10 after that attack just riddled with bullet holes. Doesn't look like it should be able to fly. And she's standing there like fucking flew that bitch right? <laughs> like she comes off as so humble and i bet she is but there is nothing wrong with being like oh hot damn i am the jam <laughs> like, but yeah thank oh, you so much jeb amazing. for that recommendation i felt a little silly because i was maybe 11 or 12 years old at this time and i i don't remember hearing about her but also like the way i was processing us being in Afghanistan and Iraq was not the way I process things now. So yeah, it was really cool. So thank you, Jeb. And again, you can check his knife work out at JebTaylorKnives.com. Shameless plug, shameless plug. And if you have any recommendations, please feel free to email us at whiningaboutherstory.com. At gmail.com. <laughs> I mean, Wait. you can actually go to whiningaboutherstory.com as well. There we have is, a contact form. There is form. a contact form. It's no big deal. It's fine. It's just like super profesh, whatever. You know. So, Emily, what are you thankful for? Um, I am thankful for a few things. One, I got to hang out with a good buddy of mine, Caleb, at Gold Rush Days that I mentioned, uh, where we found some really weird shit. So, Gold Rush Days is kind of like... Junkers Paradise. It's this big flea market. People sell stuff that they've made. People sell antiques, old crap. Um, and also like newer, nice, like, oh, I made this or, you know, here's some like garden accessories. And it is full of some of the most bonkers shit you have yeah, ever seen in your life. It's completely random. Like life-size mermaid stone garden sculptures, which what? like if they weren't $160 and 12,000 pounds, I totally would have bought because they were super cool. I so found a, vamp- a mini one. Yeah. I found a vampire hunter's kit. Oh, that's cool. And I, I almost bought it, but my friend pointed out to me, he's like, you know, it's, it's probably like a novelty. Like someone probably put that together themselves. I could put you together one yeah. of those. And I'm like, okay, Merry Christmas to me. I'm expecting it now. We're like, here's a picture of what's in it. Yeah, Make but like one. tons of vintage clothes, weird stuff. I actually saw an old McDonald's toy that I played with 
when I was in kindergarten and it, I think it was older than me because it was in my kindergarten class as like one of the beat up toys that they just had laying around. I'm wow. like, oh my God, this thing is ancient. <laughs> but that was a ton of fun. It was really good to see him. I also got to hang out with a friend of mine uh, where we like drank and watched anime. And that was really fun. Like I, I'm just enjoying the people in my life. Therapy is also going well. Good. And okay, last thing I'm thankful for. I, I should save this because there are some weeks where I'm like, I don't know. And this week I'm like, just so write shit many down. things. But um, stop me if I mentioned this last week. So Jared and I have committed to having one out of the house date night per month. You might have talked about it, but you can talk about it. I can't again. remember if I talked about it on the podcast or just told you. Yeah, anyway, same. Um, because his PTSD makes it really difficult for us to like go out and do stuff because you got crowds loud noises a lot of variables that you just cannot account for or control but in an effort to like keep the PTSD from just totally dominating our relationship we're like okay we'll plan it you know for a time when people won't be around a ton you know right. something that's like a PTSD friendly activity well and it's it's managing the for you feeling like a caretaker and feeling like a significant other exactly and now I'm realizing we definitely talked about this because you looked up the Minnesota boat license laws. Oh yeah, that's right. Shit. Okay. Anyway, we went kayaking and that was a ton of fun. And then the other day we we're going to go kayaking again, but Jared was feeling a little anxious about it. So instead we went on a hike and I'm like, oh my God, like we're actually going out of the house and having dates in nature and it's awesome. And so that's really cool. Yay. Yay. So what are you thankful for? I'm thankful for, well, okay. So last weekend we had um, people over and they helped us build a retaining wall for our new patio. So I'm thankful for that. Like, oh my God. I totally really, didn't really look nice. at the retain the retaining wall. Yeah. And then we, we were also, literally just um, out there. I know we were. And we also bought a smoker and a fire table, which the fire table will be in our wine picture. It's very pretty. It's super um, cool. But we, so my husband's been smoking some meat and that's been delicious. But I'm just really thankful. Yeah. For like our friends for helping us out. And then I'm also thankful that me and my husband are feeling better. We both like, he got way sicker than me, but we both got pretty sick this week. Luckily, not COVID. No, yeah, luckily not COVID <laughs> or anything, but like he definitely was like sick to his stomach and stuff. Whereas I just got, I was like super lightheaded and like foggy and like, so I, I don't know if it was like a flu type thing or what, but I'm thankful that we're both like feeling better. Me too. So that we can actually record this episode for you lovelies. All Harry Potter it up. Yeah. Bam. <laughs> <laughs> Toilet paper. <laughs> Toilet paper. <laughs> I should get in a convertible and just like, you know, how people have like the, the scarf. The scarf, yeah. Billowing in the wind, just my toilet paper scarf. Just like, yeah, you know, right, we I'm could better do it. than you. <laughs> well, thank there's you. one in the garage. Yeah, there is. Well, thank you so much for again, again, for listening and or watching another episode of Whining About Herstory. Please like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAH Pod. Twitter at WAH underscore pod. As we mentioned, our website is whiningaboutherstory.com and our website or that our email is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com where we'd love to hear from you. We also have a Patreon for those of you who aren't watching all of this loveliness. Um, what is it? Patreon.com forward slash whining about herstory. Yay. Yeah, if you want to see everything that's happening that is not coming through in the audio, you're missing out if you're not. And you can get access to this content and a ton more bonus content for as little as $1 a month. $1. We make it real easy. We get it. Times is tough. 
So just subscribe. It's no big deal. Yeah, you'll keep the wine flowing. Keep the wine flowing and the stories are going. Boom. New tagline. New merch. (laughs) merch. No, no, the new merch is uh, salty and sassy. Salty and sassy. Love it. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whiny About Herstory. I'm Emily, a.k.a. Moaning Myrtle. I'm Kelly, a Slitherclaw. And have an empowered day. Bye! (laughs) You want to hit the button?